Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, the island of Puerto Rico has a complex relationship with the federal government of the United States. Should it seek statehood or independence? Or is the status quo the best option for the island nation? And first, in the summer of 2023, Guatemala elected as president an outsider with a famous last name. But his political opponents used every level of law they could to try to deny his inauguration. Why was he victorious? And what does his election mean for the future of democracy in the Central American nation? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. In June of 2023, Guatemala held general elections, including for the presidency. An outsider with a very well-known last name, Bernardo Arvalo, won the most votes. Arvalo's father, Juan José Arvalo, was the first democratically elected president of the nation in 1945. Now, even though he has such a famous father, he is a political outsider running from a new political party called Samia. He won the runoff in August against a former first lady, Sandra Torres. But the period between the election and the inauguration of Arvalo was marked by numerous legal challenges to his election, threats of imprisonment, outlawing his political parties and eventually culminating in the delay of the inauguration in a sort of January 6th moment. And this was on January 15th, 2024. Ervalo has been inaugurated, but faces an incredibly hostile Congress. On today's show, we'll explore why Guatemala fell into a political crisis, how it was resolved, and what it means for the political stability of the nation, the democracy of the nation, and the potential success of the new president. Our panel today is Guillermo Trejo. He's professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, a faculty fellow at the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, and director and principal investigator at the Notre Dame Violence and Transition Justice Lab. He's the co-author of Containing Large-Scale Criminal Violence Through Internationalized Prosecution, How the CICIG Contributed to the Reduction of Guatemala's Murder Rates, and Votes, Drugs, and Violence, The Political Logic of Criminal Wars in Mexico and Luis Fernando Mack. He's a Guatemalan independent political analyst and political science professor at the Universidad de San Carlos de Guatemala. He is the author of The Electoral Reform System in Guatemala and Reform of the State, Assessment of the Current Constitutional Period and Prospects for 2024. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. Uh, Professor Trejo, I'm gonna ask you the first question. Who is Bernardo Arvalo and what does he stand for politically? I think what's most important to understand here about Bernardo Arevalo, of course, the, the last name and the family, uh, he's the son of the first democratically elected uh, uh, president in the history of Guatemala, as you said. But uh, I think it's crucial also to understand that he is an anti-corruption and anti-impunity candidate. And this is crucial because uh, the anti-impunity, pro-impunity cleavage has been one of the dominant topics in Guatemala of the past 30 years or so. And I think it's crucial to understand when we think about Bernardo Arevalo, to understand the movement behind him, not just who's behind Partido Semilla, but also uh, different episodes and moments of uh, Guatemalan history. So I'll just, I'll just mention a few. It's very difficult to understand the victory and the second democratic spring in Guatemala without going back to the end of the civil war, the peace process in 1996, 
the two truth commissions that emerge around this time, one uh, led by the Catholic Church, the, the Remy process, the first truth-seeking process to uh, look into atrocities committed during the Civil War. And then the second truth commission uh, that was mandated from the peace process that was led by the United Nations that looked more specifically into, into genocide. Um, these two processes were incomplete, uh, were part of a transitional justice process that only came to be a true accountability shock when the United Nations, together with key players in Guatemala, in the public prosecutor's office, in the, in the national police, um, in, in newly created uh, high-risk tribunals, actually prosecuted and sentenced many people who came from the civil war era, many of them linked to the military, many linked to the secret service. They had committed atrocities, but they were also part of organized crime rings and corruption rings. Uh, through this process, this collaboration of the United Nations and key actors, key lawyers, key prosecutors, uh, they were able to dismantle over 70 criminal structures. And here's where there was a huge backlash from some of these key actors. Uh, and Guatemala has been trapped in, this, uh, in these battles uh, against impunity and to protect impunity between uh, many of these lawyers and human rights defenders and academics like Luis Mack here, who've been fighting against corruption, against impunity, and uh, members from the civil war military establishment that have tried to defend their historical impunity. So that's the background to this election. And uh, after several years in which the pro-impunity forces were able to dismantle key elements of democracy in Guatemala, now there is a new democratic spring in Guatemala, and there's lots of expectations behind Arevalo and behind the movement. So, Luis Mac, ultimately, the concern, I, I suppose, with the current political elite is that they could be prosecuted. They've been promised corruption charges, promised an anti-corruption campaign. Is this ultimately the best way to describe, you know, what's happened with the election and since the election? Somebody wins and promises to prosecute corruption and other charges, and those who would be prosecuted do everything they can to make sure he doesn't win? Maybe the answer of this question is a little more complex. Um, we should remember that for many years, the Guatemalan political system has been surviving from many recurrent crises. Um, I will remember only one one or two. For example, the crisis of Black Friday in 2003, when Rios Montt, General Rios Montt, uh, was running for the election. The, another crisis that I remember is the 2011, when Sandra Torres running for the president campaign, even if he, in, in that moment, was the first lady Many people think that this is an illegal, illegal uh, campaign. In that sense, the deslegitimation of Guatemala political system is the first key of, of the crisis. The second key is the political judicialization of the, of the law, and what is called, called lawfare, the use of the system, judicial system to prosecute opponents like Guillermo Trejo said. 2023, the election uh, reached the maximum expression. Several candidates were eliminated for the legal reason, 
Um, and many people think that if Arevalo in that moment could be, be a target like a possible candidate, winning candidate, maybe he will be eliminated too. That explains how all the opponents that he have now, because many people don't have Arevalo in his mind when he's thinking in the election 2023, 20, in this year. The polls, electoral polls, don't show Arevalo like a winning candidate. So he get out of the radar of the opponents. And maybe the main key is the promise of change to Arevalo. Uh, many people think, like Guillermo said, uh, that we are watching the, the second spring of democratic in Guatemala. And that uh, promise of change maybe is what are arise the opponents to try to avoid that promise of change. And uh, Luis Mack, I want to follow up as well, since you're talking about change, democracy, you know, et cetera. The fact that Ervalo comes from, you know, such a famous family, you know, politically, the, the role that his father played, how important was that for Guatemalans in sort of seeing him represent a wave of democracy or, you know, wave of anti-corruption. His family background, like you are safe, is very important for Guatemalan people. Second is Arevalo and Semilla Party were created in the compet in the election to 2019, in the last process, electoral process. And he was identify with the struggle of CICIG, the Commission Internacional Contra la Impunidad. Uh, in that year, Semilla tried to, to carry the, the candidate of Tel Maldana, who was the one of the main actors against the, in the struggle of, of anti-corruption in Guatemala. But uh, in that year, for legal reason, Tel Maldana could, couldn't running for the presidency. But anybody, all, all the people in Guatemala remember Semilla and Bernardo Arevalo always have in his speech and his promise the address of the change of anti-corruption, anti-corruption in Guatemala. Arevalo is now a, a person who many people think is a, the hope of the change in Guatemala, the hope of the government who doesn't make a business for itself and maybe a new government who addressed the, the new spring in Guatemala. And uh, Guillermo Trejo, I've seen descriptions of Arvalo. You mentioned about anti-corruption. He's described often as a, as a progressive, presumably more on the left of the political spectrum. I know populism in the region can manifest itself on many different points on the ideological front, but is he, does he represent a move to the left as well on social change sorts of issues on, you know, questions about anti-poverty campaigns or education or some of the issues that traditionally are identified with the left in the region? I think on the economic dimension, he does represent a social democratic approach to policymaking. And in that respect, we could speak about a slight leftist shift in the country. But I think what's absolutely crucial is uh the commitment to the rule of law, the commitment to a democratic rule of law, of law the commitment to fight uh, corruption 
and to defend rights in general, human rights, uh, but also economic and social and cultural rights. So if I were to, to say this would not be, if, if, if there is a bit of a leftist shift in Guatemala, and I think it would be very important to the extent that uh, levels of poverty, levels of inequality, uh, issues of hunger, climate change is affecting Guatemalan indigenous communities, out-migration and so on and so forth. There's a series of social issues that at one time, Sandra Torres, the candidate that has lost three times the presidential bid, tried to use populist and clientelistic uh, mechanisms to actually gather that support. I think the challenge for Arevalo and for Semilla is to have a social democratic but underlying democratic approach to poverty alleviation, to fighting inequality, to fostering social, economic, political, political and human rights for indigenous peoples, which played an absolutely crucial role in the victory of Arevalo. Uh, there's two actors that were crucial in the victory of, 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 of Arevalo. On the one hand, it was people mobilizing in the streets, university students, and this is crucial. The youth in Argentina selected a libertarian with authoritarian tendencies, but the youth in Guatemala selected a social democratic candidate, uh, but with deep commitments to human rights and the rule of law. We have to understand uh, the university movement of the University of San Carlos, uh, the fact that Arevalo is a university professor, but also the mobilization of indigenous peoples, the very powerful human rights movement that is behind uh, Guatemala's transitional justice process, but that is also behind the struggle against impunity. And even though he's a minority president because he doesn't have a majority in Congress, he has public opinion on his side, he has social movements on his side, he has student movements on his side, he has indigenous movements on his side, but I think what's crucial is he has the human rights movement on his side. So I expect that this will not be... Fujimori tried to be redistributive in Peru. He was a minority president. He shut down Congress. I expect Arevalo to be a rule of law, someone who is very mindful that following the due process, there's this number of lawyers who are in exile right now. Guatemala is probably one of the countries with, with one of the most incredible generations of human rights lawyers and lawyers uh, what Luis was saying, this was not a civil war. This was a conflict. It was lawfare. It was uh, both sides using the law. And those who had the most competent lawyers, and these were lawyers that were forged in the peace process, the two truth commissions working with the United Nations, the CICIG, in the public prosecutor's office. Many of them are in exile in Mexico City, others in Washington, D.C., others in San Jose, Costa Rica, others stayed in the country. But the legal battle that the opposition gave in this case was absolutely exemplary. So I expect Arevalo to be a redistributive president, but to be very mindful and respectful of the rule of law. Otherwise, the human rights community will take distance from him and will try to hold him accountable. You. And you're listening to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're talking about the recent election and some of the challenges in the inauguration of uh, President Bernardo Arvalo of Guatemala. Our guests today are Guillermo Trejo from the University of Notre Dame and Luis Mack from the Universidad de San Carlos de Guatemala. Luis, I wanted to ask you then, we're talking about some of these different legal challenges, the way Guillermo just framed this as, as a form of lawfare. What were some of the ways 
that Arvalo's opposition attempted to deny him the presidency after he won. There was numerous legal challenges. What were some of those? To field opponent of Garibaldi and his government is uh, Consuelo Porras, the prosecutor of, of law in Guatemala. Some actors, judicial actors like Freddy Orellana is the judge of penal job, who are uh, leading the opposition of, of Bernardo Arevalo. But also, they have a, in opposition the, the Corte de Constitucionalidad and the Corte Suprema de Justicia, the main courts in Guatemala, judicial courts in Guatemala, and many uh, political parties of the opposition who are representative the whole political system in Guatemala. Maybe the main problem in Guatemala for Bernardo Arevalo is Consuelo Porras. His position, he will finish his mandatory 2024, 25, no, 26, I think, two years of the government of, of Arevalo. He has, uh, for the reform, electoral reform law, he has a uh, great autonomy of the of the presidents. He, President Arevalo can removed from this charge and he's the main problem because Ministerio Público has many cases against the, the president and his main political party of the media, like Samuel Perez and other person in, of the media. I think this is the, the main problem. In the Congress, the media doesn't have the majority of, of the congressmen so he has uh, against his government, the organismo legislativo and the Congress and the courts. And Guillermo, the opposition to Aravalo actually blocked his inauguration for a day, correct? What happened on that day? And what does it say about the, the, the state of Guatemalan democracy? Well, it shows that this uh, context of lawfare and uh, the commitment of uh, the opposition to actually boycott the, the swearing of, of Arevalo and, and his cabinet uh, was sincere and was truthful. They tried until the very last minute. They stretched this process and we were all glued to national television. I remember, you know, sending messages to my Guatemalan friends, congratulating them at four o'clock when he was supposed to be sworn in. And they would say, not yet. And at six o'clock, I resend the message and they said, not yet. Journalists were writing pieces Journalists from different international outlets were saying, finally, the spring is here. And it was 10 p.m. and it was not yet. And it was really close to midnight when, when he was finally sworn in. I think the pact of the corrupt, el pacto de los corruptos, as the civil war establishment is known, sort of the, the pro-impunity forces, they knew that they had lost this battle. But what I believe they were trying to, to do was to, to raise the cost and to send a signal uh, to Arevalo that they will be very active protecting their impunity even when he comes to power. Because one of the, the first measures he's trying to do is try to remove the public prosecutor who's been in power for two consecutive administrations. And uh, as Luis was saying, she's uh, one of the leading forces of the pro-impunity forces. So one of the first measures that Arevalo needs to, to, to get through is to really start from the top down a major reconstruction of the judicial system. The judicial system that between 2008 and 2019 was exemplary. 
one of the best in Latin America. Let's not forget that Guatemala was the first country to actually prosecute and sentence statesmen uh, for genocide. And it was not done by international courts. It was done by the local judicial system. So you have an extraordinary uh, legal community uh, that was on the mind, that was forced into exile. And now they need to clean the institutions. But my hope for Guatemala is that Guatemala has one of the most capable, one of the most talented uh, group of uh, middle-aged and, and young lawyers who've done an extraordinary job as public prosecutors and uh, uh, as judges. And they had, uh, um, uh, they had uh, major victories. And, and I hope that many of them can actually come back to the country and continue with the work. Let me just say one final thing, because I think beyond Guatemala, I think this is a tremendous victory for Guatemala. This is a major uh, crisis of large-scale criminal violence, drug cartels, gangs, and different forms of organized criminal groups. Many publics in Latin America are increasingly looking at what we call, or what people call, the Bukele model. And that's militarized, iron fist policies, the authoritarian use of the military for purposes of public security. I think Guatemala shows that there's an alternative that is not just as effective, but is much more effective than what uh, what uh, uh, Bukele has done, because what, what Guatemala showed between 2008 and 2019 was that through legal means, you can dismantle criminal structures and you can bring homicides rate down. Guatemala went from homicide rates of 45 homicides per 100,000 to under 20. Uh, we know, and these days people say that Bukele, by incarcerating close to 60,000 uh, young people, uh, that the homicide rate uh, dropped dramatically to under one digit. The big difference is that there's been a gross increase in human rights violations in El Salvador. Guatemala shows that you can bring down the homicide rate, confront criminality, bring security through democratic means. You don't need to bring soldiers of the military. You, know, you don't need Rambos. You need Sherlock Holmes. And that's why Guatemala has hundreds of thousands of domestic local Sherlock Holmes who were able to provide a security, a democratic security in Guatemala and I think that's why it's, it's so important, the victory of Arevalo and the eventual victory of the, of, of the Guatemalan model, because it shows that you don't need war, you need legal means. What Guatemala needs to go is to do is to go back to the to the to, to the peace building process of 1996 to complete and to enhance, enhance this transitional justice process that has become exemplary and many countries in Latin America are trying to emulate. We have about three minutes left, and, and uh, Louis Mack, I'm going to give you the last word on this. And Guillermo uh, Trejo's laid out a pretty optimistic, or at least the potential reference to it, you know, second democratic spring and, and some very, you know, positive developments. I guess the question is, do you share his optimism? And should we be looking to Guatemala and say that when we revisit this in two years or four years, this is really going to be a, a watershed moment for democracy and for justice in the nation? I don't know, maybe are in the middle. What remains in Guatemala is huge. 
Arevalo has to reform all the legal and institutional background. The institution that has been built for decades uh, guaranteed the survival of the criminal states. The actors who oppose the change now are embedded in the entire state institution. So the change in the system will probably take so many years. It's not only four of the presidents of, of Arevalo. So the main challenge is who is the next president? All the political system in Guatemala are dominated for the forces, contrary forces of Arevalo, are represented all the political system who we say represent the criminal states. So I I saw hope to of the new government, but I think in the future there are more threats than possibilities. And, and we are maybe seeing the battles of, of Guatemala in the, in the years uh, who are say, and maybe we can say in the future that is this period is crucial for the destiny of Guatemala. And when I think about these issues, um, I often like to think of them and describe them as ongoing political dramas. And I think it's fair to say that if nothing else, Guatemala has had a remarkable new chapter in this ongoing political drama and a reminder you know, I'm recording here from in Southern California, but across the United States, as well as within the region, this is an essential question about security, human security, about human rights, about democracy. This is such an incredibly important issue. And I, I want to be optimistic. And so I certainly am hoping that as we follow this, we have reasons to remain optimistic for this remarkable country. Uh, we've been talking about Guatemala the election of Bernardo Arvalo, the opposition to that election, and, uh, and governance challenges that he faces. Our panel today has been Guillermo Trejo. He's professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, a faculty fellow at the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, and a director and principal investigator at the Notre Dame Violence and Transitional Justice Lab. He's the co-author of Containing Large-Scale Criminal Violence Through Internationalized Prosecutions, How the CICIG Contributed to the Reduction of Guatemala's Murder Rates, and Votes, Drugs, and Violence, The Political Logic of Criminal Wars in Mexico. And Luis Fernando Mack is a Guatemalan independent political analyst, political science professor at the Universidad de San Carlos de Guatemala also a contributor quite a bit in the media and the coverage of issues in Guatemala. He's the author of The Electoral Reform System in Guatemala and Reform of the State, Assessment of the Current Constitutional Period and Prospects for 2024. Thank you both very much for your insights and for your time. Thank you. When we come back, what kind of territory is Puerto Rico? Is it a colony? We discuss whether it should seek statehood or independence. Stay with us. This is the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. Puerto Rico is 
part of the United States, and Puerto Ricans have American passports. But should the island seek statehood or should it seek independence? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. American diplomatic historians often describe the U.S. as exceptional because of its decision not to take colonies like so many European countries did. But this is not actually accurate. The U.S. does have a status as an empire because it does have colonies, and many of which do remain part of the empire. Perhaps the most visible and most salient is the island of Puerto Rico. Its relationship with the U.S. federal government is complex. On today's show, we will explore this relationship with an eye towards the potential for altering its current status with either statehood in the U.S. or independence from the nation. Our panel today is Amilcar Antonio Barreto. He's professor and chair of Cultures, Societies, and Global Studies, as well as interim director of and professor of international affairs and political science at Northeastern University. He's the author of American Identity, Congress, and the Puerto Rico Statehood Debate, and the Politics of Language in Puerto Rico Revisited. And Jorge Farinacci Fernos is Associate Professor of Law at the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico Law School, and is currently a visiting professor at the University of Buffalo School of Law. He's the author of The New Insular Cases and the Territorial Clause, From Temporary Incorporation to Permanent Unincorporation, and a forthcoming book, Puerto Rico's Constitutional Paradox, Colonial Subordination, Democratic Tension, and the Promise of Progressive Transformation. Thank you both very much for joining us. Puerto Rico grabbed a lot of headlines as a result of the hurricane that hit a few years ago. And frequently, you always heard descriptions, you know, should the U.S. help Puerto Rico? And reminders that Puerto Rico is a part of the United States. But that's really kind of a complex question. Jorge Farinacci, Farinos, what exactly is Puerto Rico's status in the United States? Well, actually, we have to start with something you just said. Uh, the current U.S. law is that we belong to, but are not a part of, the United States. And I am not quoting some you know, pamphlet on the street. I'm quoting a U.S. Supreme Court decision in the phraseology I just used. So, so obviously, that question has both legal and political implications, right? Uh in terms of, of the U.S. domestic constitutional parlance, we are a territory of the United States. Uh, as we know, uh, in the U.S., either you're a state, you have federal enclaves, right? And the District of Columbia has its own constitutional particularity uh, as, a, as, a, as a space. And you have the, the um, Native American tribes. And then you have territories. Uh, so the short uh, answer of what is Puerto Rico under U.S. Domestic, domestic law is a territory. Now, eventually, we need to get into these important distinctions uh, between an unincorporated territory and an incorporated territory, but the main uh, concept is a territory. But politically, what is that? Well, we're talking about a, a, a territory, a, a physical space full of people, <laughs> Uh, with political organization, an economic structure, uh, a culture, a functioning society uh, that does not completely govern itself and does not have either the ultimate word in its own affairs or have any participation 
in the spaces where the those ultimate decisions are made. And to me, uh, from a, a, a non-legal standpoint, that's called colonialism. <laughs> uh, so, so the distinction between a a, a colonial status and the, the form of territorial accommodation that Puerto Rico has, particularly in recent times, because for many decades we were given considerable autonomy that one would think that the leash was gone because we had such slack. But now with the PROMESA statute and the fiscal com control board, we're back to early 20th century, more direct form of political control by non-elected entities. So the main thing that, that this uh, tells us is that colonialism is constitutionally valid under U.S. constitutional law. Um, so sh short slash long answer, uh, Puerto Rico is a quote-unquote self-governing territory of the United States, but the self-governing part has taken a tremendous hit in recent times. And now, for example, the decisions of our le elected legislature and elected governor are subject to veto by an unelected board appointed by federal officers. So that's the situation right now in that we, again, we belong to, but I'm not part of the United States, but at the same time, the people who live here, because one of the things about US federalism is that one question is, where do you live? Second question is, who are you? So that's the status of Puerto Rico. The status of Puerto Ricans, it's a separate issue. It just happens that many Puerto Ricans live in Puerto Rico. Uh, hmm. But but we are, you know, we, when we are born, we're granted US citizenship. And so, for example, if I ever decide to move to the United States and wait a year, I can now pay my, pack, my taxes as everybody. I can vote in presidential elections as anybody. So that's, the again, the, the difficulty of pinpointing the exact situation because it depends on the status of the Puerto Rican territory and the, and the situation of Puerto Ricans in general as well. And uh, Amilcar Antonio Barreto, Jorge kind of anticipated my next question. First question, is Puerto Rico a part of the U.S.? Next question, are Puerto Ricans... Americans, both, I mean, there's the legal question and then there's the broad sort of political identity question. This is not unique to U.S. Puerto Rico relations. In most countries around the world, there's a difference between bare minimum statutory citizenship and full citizenship, which uh, pertains to the dominant group in that particular society. Uh, I can go from one country to another and find minorities. Yes, you have citizenship. That's the bare minimum. Uh, unfortunately, in the early 20th century zeal uh, among uh, the Puerto Rican political elite uh, to attain U.S. citizenship, they really ignored the fact that the citizenship they got was not that different quality-wise from the citizenship of African Americans at the same time. U.S. citizens, but what it meant was we can draft you, send you to war, and don't you ask for too many rights, and uh, we have a system called Jim Crow to put you back in your place. And many other peoples have experienced something similar. Let's just say that Puerto Ricans who live on the U.S. mainland often feel a social kind of colonialism that is detached from Puerto Rico, the island of Puerto Rico's political status, but it's absolutely attached to Puerto Rico's social status in the eyes of the U.S. And to follow that up, uh, Amilcar, I know there's this large presence of Puerto Ricans living in the United States, you know, particularly on the East Coast, has at least raised the profile of this question about are Puerto Ricans uh, Americans and, and Puerto Rico as a political issue. 
I don't know if it's proper to call them the expat community because are they exactly Puerto Rican expatriates or or whatever from a legal perspective, but how much is this presence of people of Puerto Rican descent living in the United States helping to affect, to alter, to frame some of the political discourses about Puerto Rico's future with the U.S.? Well, it's amazing if you look at the long view. If I look at the past half century, uh, half century ago, whenever the federal government was looking to find out how do we deal with the Puerto Ricans who live here, they looked to the island of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico's elected officials, and Puerto Rico's delegate, the resident commissioner, to the House of Representatives. They looked towards the island. Fast forward, at this juncture, close to two-thirds of all ethnic Puerto Ricans live on the U.S. mainland. Two thirds. Consequently, uh, there are now several Puerto Ricans elected in the House of Representatives. Uh, the battle has shifted. Um, Uncle Sam doesn't necessarily go first to the island of Puerto Rico to ask, what do you guys want? Sometimes they're going to listen first to members of Congress who don't necessarily agree with one another, but they have a vote, a voice and a vote versus the resident commissioner. The tide is charged. Now, Jorge, I know this came up quite a bit with the needs for reconstruction following the hurricane, I believe it was 2017, that uh, Puerto Rico has had these financial crises and was hoping to secure loans, to secure funding to uh, to help to provide some of these resources. Turned out they really didn't have, the government in Puerto Rico really didn't have very much latitude to be able to negotiate these terms. So therefore... And they kind of get in the worst of both worlds, where they, they're not treated as an independent state, so they can't raise financing. And then if the U.S. isn't, the federal government isn't providing the financing, that they just end up having projects that can't get completed because they can't come up with money for it. So very quickly, I need to <laughs> reply to the previous question. It's a very tough existential question. Are Puerto Ricans Americans? And I think the the answer will be depends on who you ask, even us, it's an identity question. Uh, I don't consider myself an American. Uh, some do, and I don't think they're particularly wrong, right? It's not, uh, we, we tend to excommunicate people who I don't know that dumb people generally believe they are. I'm not a Canadian, nothing against Canada. I'm not a Spaniard, nothing against Spain. I'm not an American, nothing against the US. Uh, and that is part of, the, of, of that existential question. And many of us, myself included, when we go to the States, I feel sort of an sort of emphasis on sort of, but but in general, an immigrant experience. Uh, I, I notice when I go to the U.S. that I am an outsider. I I I feel it, and 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 then this is even in a bad way. It's just that I notice those that 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 this this distinction. Even again, how do we characterize this? The, the Puerto Ricans who've left, uh, we call it the diaspora sometimes, right? It's this this idea of that. Yeah, they're over there. They're still part of 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 our uh, uh, cultural community, uh, but there is now a physical distance, uh, etc. Now, with regard to your 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 next question, uh, one of the things about colonialism is that colonialism is not just a political project; it has economic implications uh, in terms of of the ability. So it's again, it's a vicious cycle because colonialism tends to destroy self-sustained economic structures, and therefore. You need the, metro the metropolitan power to interfere constantly, and that means all oh, that. Therefore, you can't, you know, function correctly, and and the, and the cycle continues. And that sort of limbo, uh, I, I can give you another example. So when we were on the brink of bankruptcy, 
uh, we wanted to, the government wanted to literally file for bankruptcy, but we had been excluded from the federal bankruptcy code in the 1980s. So we figured, okay, so we'll pass a local law, a local statute that would allow us to, to, to file for bankruptcy, because if we're included in the protections of the federal bankruptcy code, therefore we are free to do our own bankruptcy. And the Supreme Court said, no, you're outside of the code for purposes of its protections, but inside the code for purposes of preemption. So we were literally, we couldn't get the federal protections and we couldn't pass a state law. It was the birth, the, the, the worth of both worlds. I think Justice Ginsburg called it a never, never land, something like that. So that repeats itself. For example, when we had the, the, the uh, natural disasters, we had other countries who wanted to bring their ships in with, with aid, but they couldn't come in because the Jones Act doesn't allow it. So, but we, we didn't even, we were also not getting the American ships. So, so it was this, again, this, this, this limbo that, that, that doesn't give us the ability to fully maximize uh, the, the, the options that will be available maybe to, to, to a state or, or to an independent uh, nation. And uh, Amilcar, I know the one of the huge concerns, you know, with Puerto Rico was just simply the mismanagement of the response in 2017, both the immediate response, you know, to, to the hurricane, and then certainly the more medium-term rebuilding, you know, helping to reconstruct the island. I think it's pretty fair to say that on the island they're pretty dissatisfied with the nature of that response. How much is that driving? you know, then a demand that, I mean, we have to change the current status because being between statehood and independence just sort of leaves you on the periphery as Jorge has been describing. Uh, let me share an anecdote of my uh, step-grandfather who was a huge uh, activist in the Puerto Rican statehood movement. Um, he was a veteran of World War I and he would love to say, America is great because America is good. And this is a man who lived through what I've described in one of my uh, writings. He lived through Puerto Rico's golden half century, uh, basically from the uh, eve of World War II until the end of the Cold War. Uncle Sam cared about Puerto Rico for its own purposes, using it as a military base and a quote unquote showcase for democracy. Uh, after the Cold War, uh, federal government lost interest in Puerto Rico, and we could see that right away when the federal government killed Section 936 of the federal tax code, uh, that was the economic lifeline of the Puerto Rican economy, and it didn't replace it. And soon thereafter, the economic downturn uh, continued. Uh, I'll say anecdotally from the perspective of the Puerto Rican who lives on the U.S. mainland and occasionally goes back to the island. My first time back to the island after Hurricane Maria, I had a sense of collective melancholy, which I had never seen before. Again, anecdotally, among many of my relatives, the assumption that we would never be abandoned by Uncle Sam, and they see, oh, yes, you can be abandoned by Uncle Sam. Um, it's a realization that what they thought was the nature of federal territorial relations was based on that golden half century, not realizing it's over. You're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the current status 
of uh, Puerto Rico vis-a-vis the U.S. federal government and potential alterations of that status with Amilcar Antonio Barreto of Northeastern University and Jorge Farinacci Farnos of the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico Law School, also visiting at the University of Buffalo. So Jorge, I guess the next question is, if the current status isn't terribly attractive to Puerto Ricans, and I think it's fair to say where it currently is doesn't necessarily work, is the better pathway to seek closer ties with the U.S. statehood, or maybe it's time to grant Puerto Rico its independence. So if it's a colony, globally, colonies are supposed to be granted their independence by now. Yeah, colonialism is illegal. <laughs> and normally the solution for colonialism is self-determination and, and liberation of being rid of the, the colonial relationship and therefore a break with, with the, the metropolitan power. Now, the problem is that the issue of statehood is a controversial one, not only in the United States, which it is, it's a controversial position in Puerto Rico to have. Uh, we are split down the middle as to that question. Now, for many years, what happened technically for decades no one really defended the territorial status because those who defended the status quo would argue that the territorial condition had been overcome in 1952 with the adoption of the Commonwealth status. So therefore, they, they didn't have to say, yes, we support the territorial status because they were saying, no, 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 we are, we, we, we are no longer that. Recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions, which many have dubbed the new insular cases, have said, no, 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 no. Nothing really happened in 52. We gave you the keys to the car, but not the title to the car. Uh, so it was a, 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 some more self-government, but no actual fundamental change in the territorial status. Now, the problem is that after 57 years of, you know, it's it's been a, it, it's sort of a dysfunctional, functional colonialism, right? It is a dysfunctional system, but we people have been able to raise their children and, and, and you know, have a decent life. Uh, so therefore, there are there are vested interests in the current status, uh, not only in Puerto Rico, but in the U.S. as well, particularly economic interests. Because, for example, what happened right now with the Fiscal Control Board, you can't do that to a U.S. state. And unless you want to send in the Marines, you can't do that to an independent republic. So the best actually, this became the the panacea for for the the vulture funds, etc., who bought up much of Puerto Rican debt because they have the political tools to keep us in check because we are a territory of the United States. Now, the problem is that independence is not a majoritarian position either. And uh, there have been some attempts to define some sort of, of independence that has maybe under the treaty clause or, or, or in, the, uh, for the, in terms of US constitutional law that would have some sort of understanding one-on-one -on -one with the US, particularly with regards of things like like citizenship and defense and 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 the fiscal and trade, which are again we've been even though we belong to but are not part of the United States, our economy is completely integrated to the United States economy. Uh, so so just granting Puerto Rico independence and here the keys to the car after you've broken down the car, it's a problem. So even then, it would have to be a transition, uh, and and there's understandable fear of both positions, like. Statehood is an irreversible condition. Once you're in it, there's no control Z. There's no undo. There's no, oh, we don't like this. Uh, so it is a little scary, particularly as an Hispanic country, that we would dissolve ourselves into a country that some would see as a different country. But independence also could be scary, right? Uh, 
uh, in terms of okay, so we don't have a printing press for our dollar for our for our currency. We don't we don't have all, all that uh, experiencing experiencing that in, in that realm. So therefore, it's a catch twenty two. We are unsure of what would happen if we stay away from the territorial status. But nobody likes really the territorial status. Therefore, but at the same time, nothing has changed an inch since six, seven years ago. The Supreme Court of the United States told us that that we are still a third United States. People went, you know, the, the debates sparked up again, but we have not moved an inch. And um, and I don't really see much change in the short term, except some sort of collective declaration that the current situation is untenable, but but it's still going on. So it's sort of rarely tenable uh, because that's that's been the situation for, 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 for more than 100 years. So it's a difficult situation because one, again, the, 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 you have to have agreement with uh, amongst ourselves and then we, it, 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 under all the options, we need someone else across the table. Uh, we can negotiate statehood by ourselves, even independence. You can technically do it unilaterally, but that doesn't really work that way. So, so we need more of, of what would be the political conditions for, for a real solution that benefits both sides, right? But anyway, so if, if you know the answer to that one, you would have solved 125 years of Puerto Rican colonialism. Let me know if you, if you, if you find it. <laughs> Very good. And Emma Cart, one of the reasons why you know this discussion seems so salient is this has become a partisan issue in the U.S., per, particularly because the progressive wing of the Democratic Party have advocated for statehood. The official position of the Republican Party has been a rejection, but based on partisan issues, that this would just ensure two more Democratic senators and another Democrat in the House. But that kind of papers over much deeper issues about, about Puerto Rican statehood, doesn't it? Very quickly, if I go back the century, the very first political parties formed in Puerto Rico after the dawn of U.S. rule, advocated statehood and were closely aligned with the Republican Party. If you understand that the Republican Party back then was the party of Lincoln and the Democrats had a huge segregationist wing, it makes sense. But the American political parties have realigned since then. I think that far too many people don't understand, to be candid, what statehood is really all about. Take a peek at the American flag. You see 50 stars, you see 13 stripes. How did you get all those stars? Oh, we carve out a territory. Who moved into those territories? The people from the existing states. So in effect, statehood was a process of reabsorbing Americans who moved west. And when the federal government acquired a territory that was full of different people, statehood was invariably delayed. Why it was delayed in Oklahoma, Arizona, New Mexico, and even Utah. Yes, there were white, mostly Anglo-Saxon, but because they were different in the sense of practicing plural marriage. For Arizona and New Mexico, it was because of a Latino majority, Oklahoma because of Native Americans. Uh, so statehood was always a process of reuniting the same homogeneous mass, not about bringing in new peoples. And this now manifests itself in the contemporary partisan uh, debates in Washington, D.C. Let me be frank, we have now seen the quiet dog whistle racism of the 1970s and 80s become foghorn racism in more recent years. And to be candid, there are folks in one of the two major political parties who frankly don't want 
this wave of brown people, even if they all learn to speak English and become culturally in, in every way. Just ask Puerto Ricans who've been living on the U.S. mainland for a couple of generations. They are still racialized, and this affects how Washington sees the island of Puerto Rico. Uh, it's not so easy, and it's a very uncomfortable conversation. And uh, Jorge, the Supreme Court had the opportunity to revisit the insular cases. I know there was a case that actually was potentially on their docket and they chose not to. First of all, the insular cases, basically, my understanding, you can correct me on this, basically, back when the U.S. takes colonies, asked, if you take territories, does the Constitution follow? And the answer at the time was no. And some of the justification was pretty indefensible at this point, having to do with could they understand the Constitution? There was, quite frankly, was considerably racist when it came out. Could the court solve a lot of these problems by just revisiting the insular cases and or possibly even just setting it aside? This is a court that sets aside precedent when it, when it chooses to. If you just set aside the precedent of the insular cases and say the Constitution follows in any territory, how much would that resolve a number of the issues that Puerto Rico has raised? First of all, the issue is much worse. So, so what happened? So, before the insular cases, you just had territories, and by the way, territories are under Section Three, Article Four of the U.S. Constitution, which is about new states, right? So, the historically and structurally, the concept of a territory was as a as a transition, as a as a process, which I think Amirka described beautifully in terms of of eventually uh, uh, granting statehood. Now, then, you have these populated places. That 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 the notion of an automatic trans, transition to statehood became a scary prospect for 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 many powerful interests in the United States, and so in the insular cases, the Supreme Court, what we could say, split the territorial atom and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we had that one form of of territories uh, of the fifty, right? That that uh, that, that uh, the the new thirty seven, but we have unincorporated territories, and those are the ones that need never ever start the path to statehood. And you can be there indefinitely. Now, the new Supreme Court, if you check the last five cases about Puerto Rico in the last 10 years, that distinction is gone. It's absolutely gone. They only mention territories, but the definition they use is the new one, is the unincorporated territory. Currently, the United States, except from one little inlet in the Pacific, has no incorporated territories, not one. Everybody is an unincorporated territory in the United States, and it's a permanent possibility to stay there. Now, in several of these cases, many of the litigants actually asked directly the U.S. Supreme Court to revisit the insular cases, and explicitly the U.S. Supreme Court has uh, resisted. The only voices that have sort of raised concern were Sonia Sotomayor, who, interestingly enough, is <laughs> obviously of Puerto Rican descent, and Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote a, a, a really direct uh, concurring opinion recently, but even he, even though he scolded the insular cases, he himself acknowledged that he has no answer as to what would replace it. And I think that what scares many of the justices in the Supreme Court, that even if they, and that's a big if, even if they really have trouble with the insular cases, well, maybe they don't because it doesn't really affect them, it affects other people. Uh, but even if they believe that it's it's wrongly decided, that it's it's a shameful, racist-laden uh, uh, opinions with references to alien races and horrible descriptions of, 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 of non-white peoples, that they don't know what to replace it with. And therefore, the status quo works better. So therefore, I get they saying that 
from the it's 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 they are defending U.S. institutional interests, and if that means keeping these insular cases alive because they don't know if any change they would do from a court standpoint would compromise the political branches in the designs of Puerto Rico, then so be it. And that's where we are right now. With that, we'll end. Our panel today has been Amilcar Antonio Barreto, who is Professor and Chair of Cultures, Societies, and Global Studies and the Interim Director of International Affairs and Political Science at Northeastern University. He's the author of American Identity, Congress, and the Puerto Rico Statehood Debate, and the politics of language in Puerto Rico revisited. And Jorge Ferranacci Fernos, Associate Professor of Law at the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico Law School and a visiting professor at the University of Buffalo Law School. He's the author of The New Insular Cases and the Territorial Clause, From Temporary Incorporation to Permanent Unincorporation, and the forthcoming Puerto Rico's Constitutional Paradox, Colonial Subordination, democratic tension, and the promise of progressive transformation. Thank you both very much for joining us. And that's it for today's program. Thank you for listening. The Scholar Circle is hosted by Doug Becker. Its managing producers are Ankina Agassian and Melissa Chifrin. Sed Dongre is our webmaster and assistant producer. Our archives are at scholarcircle.org. And our podcasts are on Apple and Google Podcasts and iTunes. Please follow us on at Scholar Circle or me at Armudian and join our Facebook page. I'm the founder, anchor, and occasional host, Maria Armudian. Mm-hmm.